Hi, and welcome to the Trauma Podcast. A little bit of a change in the usual order of things. As you can probably tell, I'm not Dr. Joe DeBose. I am, in fact, Rishi Kundi, his partner, and I am interviewing Dr. DeBose. Today, we're going to be talking all about chest tubes. And so, your, your voice is so much smoother than mine. I feel like I'm in a, a really a strong therapy session. That's <laughs> That's great. Maybe I can hypnotize you later and you can give me some money. That's it. So today we're going to be talking all about chest tubes, which is the kind of topic that every intern thinks they have mastered. And the longer that you're in training and practice, the more complex the subject really reveals itself to be. Uh, so let's start with a very, very simple question, Joe. Who needs a chest tube? It's one thing if someone comes in with you know, a clear tension or an x-ray that shows that he's got a whiteout on one side after trauma, but what about more than that? What are the subtle patients who need chest tubes? Yeah, so I, I think yeah, you, get, you hit it on the head, right? The hypotension with a pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax or a big hemothorax, no-brainer, right? So question it gets a little more intricate there after it can get a little more intricate certainly i think anyone who has a hemothorax and other potential bleeding sources that you're trying to sort out sometimes putting the tube in there and just being able to monitor that drain it eliminate it as a potential source or in the context of not having a chest x-ray i do have a adage that i teach the trauma fellows often no one dies without two chest tubes because if you're actively coding or in that peri-arrest phase and you can't hear breath sounds in the true, you can't disprove a tension physiology in the chest. And I really don't want to be the person who gets that picture from the morgue with the mediastinum shifted over. We've seen one or two of those in the textbook. Uh, I don't want to be that guy. Um, the smaller pneumothoraces, uh, always kind of I struggle with a little bit. In particular, kind of, you know, there's occult pneumothoraces. And when I say occult for this, you know, I, most people kind of get that probably in the listening audience, but maybe we have some younger folks who don't. Um, I'm not talking about uh, ghosts and goblins and the occult in that fashion. I'm talking about uh, a pneumothorax that you don't see on the chest x-ray, largely because most of our trauma patients are laying flat, but you do see on a chest CT. And um, I think there was all, there, when that entity was initially defined about 15 years ago, people started to look at what does that entity mean and what do we need to do with that? Do we need to drain all those occult pneumothoraces? And I think the answer that we've learned from looking at not just the regular trauma patients, but even the patients who go to the ICU and get positive pressure, it, it, they're in a monitored environment. You can detect changes in physiology that might, or desaturations, or uh, get serial chest x-rays to look at the size of that occult pneumothorax to see if it becomes something that's visible on plain film. But positive pressure alone, trauma alone, age alone, all those things have kind of been looked at, and those are not rough uh, and hard indications for a chest tube. You still have to exercise some judgment, though, uh, in trauma settings. So let's talk about a hypothetical patient with regard to imaging. Mm -hmm. uh, these kids, particularly our emergency medicine colleagues, are becoming very adept with EFAST. Yes, they are very good at it. So patient comes in, they've had blunt trauma to the thorax, nothing, they're hemodynamically stable. The chest film, which is done supine, shows no pneumothorax, but your very eager EM fellow uh, comes up and says, I see a lung point, or I don't see lung sliding patient is requiring two liters nasal cannula, he's talking to you, uh, do you pursue further imaging? Do you go for the CT scan? Do you go for a, a formal PA and lateral? Well, I think most of those patients are probably, it depends on 
the setting right so um if you're going to go for a ct anyway i would not put a chest tube in or do any intervention based upon the ultrasound the ultrasound is great in, the, in that it tells you if it's done well and it's reliable which it may not be in all trauma patients but i'll be honest i mean the technology works pretty well for most pa- people but it tells you pneumothorax or not it doesn't tell you the size of that pneumothorax. And I don't think that thin sliver of air needs additional evaluation or um, additional treatment in the majority of cases. I would say if the patient's amenable to getting an upright film, that you would do that to look for it. Probably if the mechanism uh, and the absence of sp- spinal precaution indications was there, I probably would have sat them up anyway to get the plain film. I think if you're gonna take one plain film, that's the best way to do it up front. But if it's a patient who has a C-spine precaution or a T-spine precaution, you can't sit them up, patient's probably going to CT anyway to look at their spine. So I just hold off until the CT scan, but I do keep that in the back of my mind as a potential thing that might need to be addressed. And if they have a desaturation or their blood pressure drops, I go immediately back to that pneumothorax and I look to see if that's part of the contributory issue. Okay. Um, now, when I was in training, uh, our rule as, as residents was that if it's less than 10%, put them on 100% oxygen and re-image them. Is that still your practice? Yeah, I, I don't. That's, that is certainly something that is done frequently in a lot of places. And there's a sound kind of physics rationale for that, the diffusion across membranes of oxygen and, and getting rid of that space, if you will. One, if they have 10% and they're asymptomatic, do they really need that? Do they need to have it resolved in the first four hours, even if that did work, or can you wait for 12 hours? Probably the supplemental oxygen um, is not going to, even if it did work as you think it's going to work, is really going to make that big a difference. Uh, but I don't know that the clinical studies have ever caught up with the you know pretty sound rationale for the oxygen, the 100% oxygen that people utilize. It's just never been shown in a clinical study to be a potential benefit. It's still done, and it probably falls in that category of interventions that might help and probably doesn't hurt, right? So the cost of oxygen in a hospital, we have it pumping everywhere out of every socket in the dang place. So um, is it, if you're gonna have the patient somewhere else for something else, putting them on nasal cannula at a little higher rate than you normally would? I don't see much downside per se to that, um, but at least for short duration, but um, I don't think it probably changes anything. So a lot of our chest tube management, uh, especially I think out in the community, is informed by a combination of physiology, conceptual physiology, good physics, and well, it can't hurt. And one of the things that seems like a combination of common sense is chest tube size. Mm-hmm. Uh, you figure bigger chest tube, you drain more. Um, what is your practice regarding what is your standard chest tube size, both for pneumothorax, for hemothorax, wanting to avoid, obviously, a retained hemothorax? And then we can talk a little bit about the data uh, and what that tells us, if anything. Yeah, you know, I, I, my practice has changed a bit. I, I came along in the training period where if you thought the blood was in there, you're putting in a 40 French chest tube. Bigger tube, drains it better, more reliable, it's not going to clot off. Uh, all of those factors in consideration. If it's a pneumothorax, I'd use a smaller tube. Um, I think uh, uh, training at L.A. County, uh, Kinji Naba, who's one of my kind of mentors, um, had the same question. He actually did a study on this, and he kind of clustered the chest tubes together, the 28 and 32 French and the 36 and 40, and the kind of small, large sizes. Turns out when you look at, for both hemothorax and pneumothorax, you know, what are the results with those things? There's really no difference. So I think at least in that range from 28 to 40, French of those four choices that you have, 
I think the data squarely soundly support now it's not perspective randomized stuff but I think it squarely supports that you can use whatever chest tube you got most of the time we have 32 or 36 in our trauma resuscitated bay I make sure it's one of those two and not like a pediatric 14 uh, but otherwise uh, I don't sweat uh, the rest too much I think it's more important to put the chest tube in appropriately and put it in the right spot and make sure it's functioning connected appropriately where do uh, where do pigtail catheters fall in your management in both the the resuscitation area and then afterwards when the patient's in the ICU or on the floor and your resident calls you and says, listen, that, that the formal read for the CT thorax came out and there's a little bit of a hemothorax. Yeah, great question. Uh, that's certainly, it's kind of like the ultrasound thing, right? And you've seen the, over the last decade, pigtails being placed more and more, not by IR or interventional radiology as they were a decade or more ago, but now increasingly at bedside by trauma and ER docs. Um, a lot of reasonable literature in the uh, kind of the spontaneous pneumothorax literature where you know you're up just against a pneumothorax, it's just air, you don't need a very big catheter. I think in the setting of trauma, if it's a mixed hemo pneumo, probably that I'm still not comfortable putting a pigtail in for that yet because that clotted blood is not going to come out and I think that represents a, a, a potential complication down the road. If you're going to put a tube in, you should put in the tube that you think is going to address the problem definitively. I think a pigtail almost certainly addresses pneumothoraxes every time definitively, or in most cases, uh, barring an issue with the tube. Uh, but for hemothorax, I just don't think that that's going to be the answer, to be honest with you, based on what I understand of the data now. We, we tend to get into a kind of a dance with the pigtails or hemothorax, a TPA, and then drain it, and then TPA, and oh, let's get IR to get this little, instead yeah. of just jumping to a, a large chest tube. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about retained hemothorax. We've talked about the difference and wanting to get the blood out. Yeah. And so let's... From the perspective of, say, a fourth-year eager sub-I-Med student, if the patient's hemodynamically stable, I don't think they're bleeding into the chest anymore. Why do I have to do anything to get out that little bit of blood that's in there? Yeah, so it's, it is a good question, right? I think it, there's a sense that we all want to finish what we started. Now, if I put a tube in, I want all the blood to come out, right? I mean, that there's that element of it. But what are we treating ourselves in that regard? Or are we treating the patient and optimizing for the patient's benefit? And it turns out when you look at retain hemothorax, and, and that definition can be used in a lot of different ways, but I think the standard one that's been used in most studies is initial chest tube placement, and then the blood that's left in the chest after that drainage. That's retained, or re still within the chest, hemothorax. What's the actual risk of that? Um, it's, uh, it's a culture medium, potentially, right? Blood and heme, it's rich in iron, it's got some glucose. You've now introduced a, a foreign body into the chest, in trauma setting, how many times, how often do we actually do sterile precautions? So it's probably less than optimal in terms of a sterile standpoint. And you've got a culture medium there that you potentially introduce bacteria into. And that results, if you get that blood infected or an inspection, infection in the pleural space, it's called an empyema. Uh, and that can be pretty concerning because the inflammatory response that you get, the illness that you can get with that can be pretty profound. At, at baseline, it's going to increase their hospital uh, length of stay, their ICU length of stay. It's going to make the chest tube and thoracic drainage management issue a much more complicated issue, and it's probably going to lead to a, the need for an additional kind of surgical procedure to drain that infected space. Um, so the challenge is avoiding that. Now, I was traditionally thought, was taught that if you have a retained hemothorax, that the rate of empyema, those converting into an actual culture-based infection of the blood in the chest, was about 10%. 
So we did a study um, through the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma. We've got about 20 centers together. together. Um, I think around 330, if memory serves me correctly, retained hemothorax patients from 20 centers. And we looked at kind of the outcomes. And the empyema rate actually was much more significant than that. It was about 30%. So 30% of chest tubes that you put in to, uh, that you put in and you don't get all the blood out, you get a retained hemothorax, 30% of those in contemporary practice, this was only a couple of years ago we did the study, less than a decade, um, will result in empyema. And that means longer hospital stays, more additional procedures, longer ICU stays, uh, the patients do worse. So everything I can do to avoid that is useful to me. So what's your treatment algorithm for retained hemothorax then? Yeah, so if you look at the AAST data, it was fascinating in that there's, one, we have a lot of options available to us, right? I have a chest tube in and it's not adequate, adequately draining the blood. I can do a, a myriad of different things. I can do nothing. I can put in a second chest tube. I can put in a uh, one of these pleural catheters. I can add on um, a variety of different thrombolytics into the chest to try to break that stuff up so it comes out the chest tube. I can do, even on a surgical, more invasive front of things, I can do a video-assisted thoroscopic surgery or stick a smaller camera in there and do kind of guided, image-guided based with my own eyes, drainage of that space and get all the infected stuff out. Or I can do a thoracotomy. Right, that's kind of the escalation. And all those are on the menu of things that we can bring to bear for retained hemothorax. But it turns out that probably, and that study was interesting because we looked at different categories. And if you look at the small ones, less than 300 cc's, just looking at the CT measurements and taking some estimates, you can do anything for the 300 cc ones. You can do fibrinolytics, you can do another chest tube, and probably outcomes are all gonna be the same. They probably don't need anything, to be completely honest with you. In that range from 300 to 900, VATs clearly are video-assisted thoroscopic surgery, clearly appear to be superior and an independent predictor of kind of better outcome. Beyond that, 900, now we're talking massive kind of hemothor- retained hemothorax, 900 cc's or more. Really, most of those patients went on to thoracotomy to go get a wide clearance of all that infected material and to find what's what caused that 900 cc's. I don't Because know, that's but, yeah. 900 cc's after drainage yeah. from the chest tube. Yeah, so that's usually in and of itself, it says there's a lot of blood in there. Maybe we should go take a look and see what might need a stitch, um, potentially. So that's kind of the way things panned out in that spectrum. Now, one of the things in the literature that was associated with an ampyema is administration of antibiotics around chest tube placement. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if someone is crashing in the, in the trauma resuscitation unit, you know, yelling at the nurse to give some ANSEF uh, isn't probably practicable. Uh, but when, when is it? When, is, when the patient is stable, do you give a dose of IV antibiotics? Do you wait an hour? Do you wait five minutes? What's, what's optimal practice there? You know, antibiotics for chest tubes is controversial. And if you look at some of the literature, even some of the kind of uh, systematic reviews, certainly the East um, literature suggests that it, it, although they recommend and advise it's probably reasonable to give an antibiotics, finding the data on that is a little challenging when you look at all chest tubes. But you know, the majority of chest tubes either are for pneumothorax that they drain or a hemothorax that don't have a retained hemothorax, right? So if I include those patients that don't have a culture medium in their chest, they're not likely to get empyema or benefit from antibiotics. My concern is, and I don't, you don't know this before you put a chest tube in, right, if you're going to get all the blood out or not. So if I'm going to have retained hemothorax and now I'm going to buy another one of the independent, predact, uh, independent predictors for the development of empyema in the setting of retained hemothorax was failure to give antibiotic prophylaxis at the time of chest tube placement. 
So if I can decrease that 30% risk of empyema and all the adverse things that come with it by just giving a dose, single dose of antibiotics at the time of the intervention, somewhere in that periprocedural period, when the dust settles, not while I'm giving active transfusions and all that kind of stuff, but soon, ideally periprocedural, if it's just a chest tube for a stab wound or something, uh, then I do. And I do it because if I don't get all the blood out, um, the literature kind of resoundingly says in that subset of patients of retained hemothorax that you have an increased risk of empyema. That's not true for all chest tubes across the board, but it's true for retained hemothorax, and I don't know if I'm going to have that at the time I place the chest tube. One of the other independent predictors of empyema, if I remember correctly, was diaphragmatic injury. So you've got a patient who has a chest tube because he had hemothorax. You're taking him to the OR for the diaphragm injury. Since you're in the operating room, do you do a VATS when you're there? So you're fixing it from the abdomen. You're fixing yeah. it from the yeah. abdomen. So there's lots of options with that. If it's a confirmed diaphra uh, diaphragm injury, um, you could look at it from the other side. I think most of the time, if it's um, there's lots of different ways. We could do a whole podcast on kind of suspected diaphragm injuries. But if you have an isolated diaphragm injury and you're able to even deal with it with a scope or you find it open, um, most of the time I simply repair it and stick a catheter through the diaphragm and apply some suction as I'm tying down that last stitch. And that should theoretically suck all the air out and even potentially obviate the need for, uh, if you haven't had a chest tube already, um, than the need for having a chest tube. If you already have a chest tube in place, we're going to talk about chest tubes. I assume in this scenario they already have a chest tube probably in place. Then I don't know that you do need to do an additional VATS if you feel like your repair is pretty good from below. Okay. Um, Unless blood is continuing to pour out of the chest tube, and then you got to go find the source. Right. So we have our patient put a chest tube in. We're not worried about a retained hemothorax. You're on rounds. The resident says there's no air leak. And he asks, is it time to take the chest tube out? Yeah, there's a lot of dogma around chest tubes. And dogma's, not, I, editorializing here for a brief second, dogma's not a bad word, right? Dogma is tried and true practice that maybe didn't at the benefit, time that it was developed didn't have the benefit of scientific study or a, a more refined understanding of the process at hand and all the elements that go into it. But it, it has worked. So dogma's not a dirty word. But just because you've been practicing one thing and it's safe every time doesn't mean it's the optimal thing for every patient. So there's this question, and a lot of it comes from there's this overlap between the elective thoracic world and the trauma world, and we want to do best in both worlds. So we try to leverage some of the data from the elective world because it's easier to study patients in that environment. But there's this debate about uh, how quickly can you put somebody on suction, right? And do you need to leave? I mean, I was always taught you, uh, I mean, put them on water seal, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I was always taught you have somebody on suction for at least 24 hours, right? And they have to have no increase in pneumothorax and no air leak, and then you take them off the suction, they get another 24 hours, and then you can remove the chest tube safely. Those numbers are pulled from somebody's left colic flexure, <laughs> someone well-intended, right? <laughs> They're not blasting it out of their left colic flexure willy-nilly. They held it for a long time, and then it squeezed out when they were trying to be thoughtful. So um, I'm sorry that's a very colorful analogy, but it is coming from somebody's best experience. Uh, and it, it's safe. I will tell you that's a very safe, reasonable approach. But a lot of people have now debated on, does that just actually prolong the patient's hospitalization? Now you're not talking about 24 hours on, on, water seal, on suction, 24 hours on water seal. That's two days for a lot of patients. Maybe they didn't need that chest tube in. So 
there's literature in both the elective thoracic surgery world and the trauma world that suggests David Livingston did a great study on this. There's a number of other people. Um, you can find this literature certainly out there that suggests that if you you can put a lot most of these patients on early water seal. Now, what early is varies between the studies, an hour, six hours, 12 hours, but early water seal and get that at least that initial chest x-ray. If the pneumothorax doesn't increase, you cut now 24 hours off the patient's chest tube time. And I think that has value and importance. There's also debate with these, um, you know, with water seal and the positive pressure, both for occult pneumothorax, air leaks, and the duration of chest tube. And I think the literature is now squarely in favor of considering positive pressure and the amount of positive pressure you're giving to ICU patients who need it, but that the influence on that, on the increase of pneumothorax or complications relative to chest tube management are not as pronounced as we may have once thought. So consider it as a factor in how you manage the chest tube, but don't let it impact when you're going to put the patient on suction, uh, when you're going to remove the chest tube uh, as powerfully as was taught a decade ago. Yeah, I certainly... Um was taught not to take out test tubes as long as someone was yeah. on positive I was pressure. Too. I was too. A very extreme uh, perspective that isn't yeah. isn't so much the standard these days. So let's say the resident comes to you and says, Dr. DeBose, the patient has an air leak and they've had an air leak for three days and we don't know what's going on. Uh, how do What do you do with the chest tube? How do you work that out? Yeah, this can be tricky and challenging. So there's different ways, uh, different thought processes, right? And and again, this may be a spot where positive pressure comes into play, right? So now we've got a patient who has an air leak that is not going down. Can we turn down the positive pressure? Can we turn down the amount of suction that we're using? Uh, because if you've got an open air tract between the chest tube and the somewhere distal to the trachea, sucking air through it is not going to help it heal any. So putting as low a flow state and as low pressure on that hole will allow the body to seal it off. So you can do that a variety of different ways. Um, uh, I typically, and again, no data on this, I'll turn the, uh, start with turning the suction down from maybe 20 millimeters to 10 uh, and see if the, uh, on a repeat chest x-ray, if the ch- lung stays up and what happens to the air leak. Um, some people get more aggressive than that. If it's been up a couple of days and the lung and the chest x-ray shows the lung is up, but they have an air leak, you're now getting adhesions that are uh, appearing between the lung itself and the chest wall. So that lung may be w- pretty well adhesed and you may be able to more aggressively at day four and five, be able to come off the suction completely and have the lung reliably stay up. But in any setting, when you're figuring out a strategy for those air leaks and how to manage them, uh, you need to do it in a monitored way in at least a semi-safe environment with a plan to, to follow your interventions radiographically and clinically. The ones that are really problematic are um, kind of those annoying air leaks that just really won't go away. Um, the big tracheobronchial ones that need something done up front are typically not subtle. The patients have numerous, you know, air under the skin everywhere, right? They have crepitus everywhere. It's a blowing continuous air leak through the entire respiratory cycle. The ones that are always problematic are the ones, to me, are the, uh, you know, the day one or day two, the only expiratory, right? And they're on minimal pressure. I have found, and I think most people will suggest thoracic people who are, you know, nuanced in thoracic trauma and thoracic surgeons, is just be patient with the majority of those. They will get better and stop at some point, but continue to follow the patient's symptoms, continue to follow chest x-ray. And there are always those rare occasions where you have to go back 
in most instances, it's a stab wound or you have a documented pleural bleb that you know is probably likely the region that was an issue. And you can stick a camera in and staple out that little area peripherally, if that's the source, of kind of a lung leak. Um, and that, that has worked for me in several instances. So it, it is a challenging entity to manage, though. Okay. Uh, let's say that you are writing a guidebook for interns on the trauma service. And the chapter is uh, criteria for removing a chest tube. Mm-hmm. What are the basic uh, questions that you want an intern to come to you with, with answers, uh, so that they know ahead of time whether it's time to take the tube out? Yeah, the indication plays a plays some role, right? If I have an esophageal injury that I'm draining, it's a little different than just a hemothorax or pneumothorax, or esophageal repair I'm protecting for drainage. But for your garden variety pneumothorax or hemothorax, I want to know how much the output is putting out all kinds of numbers in the literature, right? I start to think seriously about, is it time to come out after the output gets below 200? Some people in the literature say it must be less than 50. Some people I've, I've heard espoused uh, in dogmatic discussions less than that. Um, I think it certainly 100 cc's a day is probably very reasonable. I get more aggressive sometimes at 200 cc's per day, depending on the character and the quality of that. If it's bright, if it's still bloody, it might be something that we need to leave in for a while longer. If it's serious and somebody who's giving back all their edema fluid, interstitial swelling, I'm perhaps less concerned at 200 with serious fluid. But 100 will keep you safe. So output is one thing. It's got to be down output. It's got to be off suction. Uh, not There's really not any algorithms out there that say leave it up to suction and then take it out on suction. Some patients, you could probably get away with that, and that's fine, right? But I think you need to – I typically go to a short period, um, typically the next morning, so 12 hours, just because it's convenient when you round with people. And most of these patients are not being held in the hospital just for their chest tube. I put them on suction uh, water seal early and then give them another 12, 24 hours and get another repeat chest x-ray. If that's the case, then that chest tube, if its output is down low enough, can come out. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's go back to the question of dogma. Yep. Taking a chest tube out. Oh, yeah. So when I was training, it was we had two thoracic surgeons who had wildly different opinions. What did they tell you? Uh, one person bear down on expiration. Mm-hmm. The other person refused to have their patients get the chest tube taken out unless they were taking a big, deep breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that the word balloon got bandied about a little bit, but I've never seen one. Yeah. Uh, but with both in both cases, there was a very sound physiologic explanation. You know, thoracic surgeons love to draw the thorax and pressure differentials. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Personally, I didn't see a difference between the two surgeons' patients in terms of recurrent pneumothorax. What's your practice? What does literature say? What what should we really be doing? I, too, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by the study of thoracic surgeons in general. They're some of the smartest people I know, but they're also very uh, opinionated by what they believe is, is true sometimes. Not, all, not always the case. You can't stereotype everybody. But I was taught, I think I was taught in expiration, and then I went to another facility. I'm in the military. I was a military trainee, so we moved around a lot of different hospitals. I heard everything under the sun. Um, I think it doesn't matter, uh, and I think there's data to support that. The Yale group actually published a study not too long ago. I think I pulled this. I'm going to cheat and look at it on my uh, table here. Oh, 2001 Journal of Trauma uh, from, from the Department of Yale, uh, Vinci. So I just think this is a <coughs> cool study to keep in your hat when you get into somebody who's arguing about how you should properly pull a chest tube. And the the punchline of the study is it doesn't matter. They both did the same. End expiration, ec, uh, ec, 
expiration. I've heard, and, and there's in the literature all kinds of perfect quote-unquote ways to do it, with using a, a circus balloon to blow on the thing, using something to smell, so take a deep smell of the roses, or tell people to take a drag like they're dragging on a joint. You know, whatever it is, uh, probably voodoo. And the most important thing is probably getting it out quick and forming a nice seal to skin level when you do it with, with some, however you don't want to do that. And again, that's not well studied either. So tube comes out. Mm-hmm. Dealer's choice about inspiration, expiration. Do we always get a chest film afterwards? We do always get a chest x-ray afterwards, and I've always questioned uh, why. There's there's also some good data on this. Uh, some in the pediatric literature, some kind of forward-thinking folks in the thoracic elective setting, and even in the trauma setting. They're all small studies, no prospective randomized stuff. But you think about the number of chest x-rays we get after chest tube removal. And I think just personally, in my looking back to my own experience, and I've never seen it quantified, that burden of negative chest x-rays, or more importantly, I should say, chest x-rays that may have a small residual pneumothorax, but didn't trigger you to do anything else. Um, I think there's a school of thought, and again, needs to be fleshed out better, perhaps with prospective randomized study, but you've got enough retrospective and even prospective observational data to tell you that if patients don't get symptoms, Think back to your own experience, everybody listening, or every chest tube you've seen, everybody's seen a small residual pneumo after chest tube removal and never did anything with it um, in the majority of cases, uh, unless the patient had symptoms. So if they don't have a change in their vital signs or symptoms, uh, desaturation, pain, uh, shortness of breath, any of those things, and you see a small pneumothorax, you wouldn't treat it anyway. So are we get, why are we getting chest x-rays every time? There's a ground, a school of thought that you could just simply take the chest tube out, see if they have symptoms in six hours, send them home. That's a little bit aggressive, perhaps. And uh, there's another, you, you touched on another technology that I've never really seen somebody address adequately in any kind of meaningful way. But what about ultrasound, right? If we're trying to detect mm-hmm. rec- pneumothorax recurrence, and we pull chest tubes, I would love to do a study comparing chest x-ray to ultrasound. One, I bet both of them identi- or have equal degree of identification uh, in terms of residual pneumothorax afterwards. And I bet in both cases, symptoms and patient examination and physiology trump both of them. So that's my take on this. So the last question about chest tubes. Yep. And this is from personal experience because I still bear the scars of having gotten chewed out for this. Yeah. Is there any situation in the acute resuscitation in the long term where clamping a chest tube is the correct move? I don't believe so. I think the whole point of having that water collection system is it's to clamp with a release valve. I don't. What do you get out of doing an extra clamping on the thing? Um, I can't think of anything uh, that you would that a clamp would really help for. I understand the rationale again. We, are, we can physiologically rationalize just about anything we do with the chest tube because it could go either way and we don't know, right? Oxygen, inspiration, expiration, all these things you can argue one way or another. Sure, they have a great physiologic evidence or thought process, but clinically irrelevant. I, think, I don't think clamp, clamping chest tubes has any real role with modern pleurivacs, maybe with the older tube bottle systems, and that's probably where it comes from. I'm going to take a copy of this podcast and send it back in time to 2009 and send it to my attending. Fair enough. So, a couple of random questions here. Yes, sir. Uh, let's start with Texas barbecue. You are oh, from yeah. Texas, yep, 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 yep. and barbecue to me uh, is something that involves a lot of sauce. Mm-hmm. Is that the case in Texas? 
barbecue is a religion. Okay, it's a form of religion. And as with any religion, be you uh, um, Protestant or Islamic, there are multiple sects. S E C T S sects. Um, and uh, I think people fall into different schools of thoughts in that. I'm a not barbecue place. One of my favorite places in the world um, to go for barbecue uh, is in South Texas, kind of between Austin and um, Gonzales, Texas, where my folks live. And in that town, uh, they have um, three barbecue joints, and they're all very different. One place on the sign, on the door says, we don't serve, we don't have barbecue sauce. You want barbecue sauce, go down the street. The other place has some really tangy and tasty barbecue sauce, so it's different strokes for different folks. I like meat that's done with dry rub that you don't need barbecue sauce for, but some of the barbecue sauces are tangy and kind of have their own flair too, so I think it's, I could eat barbecue every day of the week, and I don't think any two meals would be the same if you went to the right places. So your wife and I, your lovely wife and I, follow each other on social media. And because of that, I was able to see a short video of you playing guitar. Yeah, occasionally. Not very good. How long have you been playing? Uh, you know, my dad um, is a guitar virtuoso. I mean, the band can literally pick up any musical instrument. I've seen him. He lived in the Far East with Exxon for many years. I've seen him pick up. Uh, something that looked completely strange to me that just had strings on it and he'll give him a little time and he'll end up being able to play a song on the thing I did not inherit said Gene and I think it's a great the great disappointment in my father's life because every time I go home he wants to pick and I can only play a few bar chords I'm not horrible but he just just a virtuoso so I've always been a little self-conscious with him doing that what kind of music do you like listening to I'm all over the place reaching all over the place right now I'm listening to Django Reinhardt um, I was, uh, oh man, for a long time I was on a Post Malone kick in here. Um, I like classical music. I like rap. I like country, of course. I mean, that's probably my go-to. I, I was listening to Eddie Arnold and Hank Williams, which is 1930s country music today. I like the variety of life. I don't want to order the same musical thing from the from the menu every time, yeah. to be honest. I like Hank Williams Sr. myself quite a bit. I do too. Um, well, uh, you and I will have the chance to talk again offline well. uh, for the next God knows how long. But I think that brings it to a conclusion for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much yeah. for speaking to me. Yeah, and I want to thank you for your help. I, I know that uh, the first couple podcasts, people may have heard my voice interviewing a few of our fellows. But behind the scenes, Rishi Kundi has really helped put this together. We are um, equal collaborators on this thing. Uh, and I appreciate all you've done to help out. Um, and you'll be getting interviewed here on a couple of podcasts, too. I will. Because you have a unique expertise to bring the field. And the last thing I'll close with is you guys can check out all of our content. We encourage you to on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you consume podcasts. Rishi has figured out how to do that. He's the technical whiz on our team. And if you have any questions, recommendations, or suggestions for topics, um, A, we would love to make connections between someone who wants to interview somebody and somebody who deserves to be interviewed. So we can do that here, but ideas in general are great. And you can reach us uh, to give us those at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. All one word, thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Rishi.